This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Rolf Hughes and Rachel Armstrong to talk about their book, The Art of Experiment, Post-Pandemic Knowledge, Practices for 21st Century Architecture and Design. Rolf Hughes is professor in the Epistemology of Design-Driven Research at the Department of Architecture, KU Leuven in Belgium. And Rachel Armstrong is professor of experimental architecture at Newcastle University and visiting professor at KU Leuven in Belgium. Thank you both for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Brian. It's great to be here. So before we begin, could you both maybe tell us a little bit more about yourselves before we dive into the book? Um, okay, well, I'm um, uh, I'm director of artistic research for the Experimental Architecture Group, which is an interdisciplinary group led by Rachel. Um, I am also an interdisciplinary artist and performer, and um, my writing really spans creative and critical genres. So I come from a background in literature and uh, have moved through the performing arts into architecture across art, craft and design. And um, I guess the common thread in all my various sort of nomadic wanderings is the idea of artistic research, which is the the idea. I don't think it's taken hold so much in the States yet, but uh, it's been very strong in Scandinavia and Northern Europe and is spreading further afield and it's the idea of um, uh, research based upon artistic practice research deriving from the specifics of artistic practice itself so i've worked across a range of artistic disciplines uh, to support that the development of that research paradigm interesting and uh, hello everyone um I'm Rachel Armstrong and i'm professor of experimental architecture at Newcastle University but my research thread, I would say, uh, originates from when I'm a child. And I would say it's thinking with and through life 
as a framework for understanding the world. And it's something that I have really been passionate about uh, as long as I can remember. And I am also a a multidisciplinary practitioner. I started actually uh, in natural sciences and medicine. And um, it was really thinking about, you know, how do we um, imagine the body uh, through the lens of biology. And at the time, in the early uh, 1990s, um, I'd been on a sabbatical in India and had worked on a leprosy colony and saw how very simple technologies could extend and uh, reconfigure the body, but not just that in an anatomical way, but actually also in a um, in a, a way that restored identity and notions of community. And I was really taken by that. And I realized that medicine as a discipline didn't have all the answers I was looking for. And when I went back to the UK, I started to work with artists like Helen Chadwick, who was at the time working with notions of the flesh, actually, and um, viral landscapes, uh, which were critiquing HIV at the time, and then performance artists like Orlan and Stellark. And as I was uh, exploring what this actually meant, what what did it mean to um, take my biological knowledge, which I'd applied in medicine, and then use that in some way to frame conversations, frame insights in the arts. Um, I was then approached by Neil Spiller from the Bartlett School of Architecture to uh, teach uh, particularly um, advanced technologies uh, because medicine was obviously at the cutting edge of technology and biology was seen through the lens of all these um, extraordinary develops, uh, developments, you know, from the level of cells to um, prosthesis to epidemiology. Uh, and so that was an interesting subject for architecture. So in that space, then, I started to learn uh, about this in- fantastic environment, this fantastic learning environment called architecture, uh, which spanned engineering and the arts and incorporated the social, the cultural, uh, was an incredible place. I just thought it was the best laboratory for thinking. And um, because I had my uh, background in biology and, and and I've just totally, you know, framed my world through this lens of life, ranging from um, how does matter become lively um, to, you know, once we have a living body, how do we actually understand that and how might we transfer those principles to other things? So um, I really like to interrogate notions of life. I don't have a fixed notion, um, but using that as a framework, I then started thinking about the built environment as a body, as as an organism, not um, metaphorically, um, not in terms of its aesthetics, but literally how could you um, uh, make a body um, uh, as something that became inhabitable, asking the question, you know, why do we as living things inhabit dead spaces? Um, So that uh, led me to my PhD then, which, uh, again, used the lens of life to critique 
uh, architectural spaces and uh, found myself uh, fascinated by the city of Venice, which seemed to me to be a giant organism, <laughs> uh, and 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 had a computational uh, dimension, which was this negotiation between the shoreline and the um, built space. Um, and then went to Newcastle as a professor of experimental architecture, where the uh, amazing experimental architecture group uh, was assembled you know, with uh, people from uh, multiple dis- uh, disciplines, you know, like Rolf, um, but also Simone Ferracina and Pierangelo, Scrovaglieri and uh, Andrew Ballantyne. Um, and um, the conversations that we had from different perspectives through design, through architectural history, through physics, through materials, uh, John Bauer, Hours, you know, music um, uh, was a very, very rich environment to start to um, extend knowledge practices, which I guess uh, leads us uh, into the ambition of the book. Yes, great segue. And so what I'd like to start with is, you know, the book is obviously about COVID. I mean, it's about much more than that, but, you know, it is, it read the title, it says post-pandemic. And so the first question I have is, you know, what is what I guess there's a lot in the book. So what what's the overall theme here? I guess what are what are you trying to accomplish? And then I'd like to kind of dive into each chapter a little more specifically. From my perspective, the the book is about um, looking again, in some ways, the absolute origin of research. You know that uh, to to look again to check that the things that we think we knew before the pandemic still apply afterwards. And if they don't, what is it that's changed? And so that gives us a focus for attention, for thinking about, okay, we have managed to ignore and become blind to certain things that were uh, all around us and were potentially really obvious, but we didn't see them. Why? From my perspective, um, I mean, I agree with what Rachel just said, but uh, I would also say that it's a story. The the book is actually a very ambitious story that seeks to tell, um, I I was about to say history, but I wouldn't like like historians to think of this as a history book, but uh, that tells the development, let's say, of knowledge practices, really from the beginning of time um, to the present day. And it's interesting, Brian, that you say it's a book about COVID. I'd never thought of it that way. Uh, the subtitle is Post-Pandemic Knowledge Practices for 21st Century Architecture and Design. And I think there's something a little bit uh, optimistic or perhaps um, perhaps it's wishful thinking in the post-pandemic uh, line there. But I think what the last two years have shown us is that, uh, as Rachel was saying, a lot of things that we've taken for granted, we can no longer take for granted. And so the book is ultimately an argument for really rethinking not only our relationship to knowledge formation, but beyond that, uh, rethinking what we value, uh, what we place value on, um, what is important in society, and particularly what sort of ethical relationships we might uh, aspire to, not only between our fellow human beings, but to the, uh, particularly importantly, to the more than human or the non-human world, because it's the ecological crisis that is uh, an expression of a very 
unbalanced, let's say, relationship or exploitative relationship to nature and ecology that we wish to redress with this book, amongst other activities. Uh, interesting. And so you know, I want to come back to both of your introductions. Uh, they shed a little bit of light because I guess I'll be honest, the book, when I first picked it up, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different than, I guess we'll say, the traditional architecture book. And so both of you have a very clear interest in hybrid or cross-disciplinary research, if I'm understanding correctly. That's yeah. correct. That's right. However, now, in the book, though, the, if I understood correctly, you make the case that a lot of times, and I, I guess you use a different term, but I guess we'll say, even when we attempt to do hybrid or cross-disciplinary anything, knowledge or research, whether it's bias, et cetera, Afterwards, we kind of go back to, and I think you use the term subsume, we kind of go back to our own uh, interest and in kind of ignoring all the cross-disciplinary research. Am I understanding that correctly? It's a tendency, yes. It's, it's more complicated. Uh, change is hard. Change requires a lot of practice and investment. So a, a default response that we have to stepping out of our comfort zone is to go, phew, Oh, that's over now. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go back to what I know. That's a tendency. I would say uh, two things, really. One is that I think we're interested in creating new practices. Um, so instead of being bound by disciplinary identities and by the logics of universities and research councils, I think we, we're interested in creating what we often call monsters, or monstering practices, which are mm -hmm. defined as practices that uh, exceed the logics of classification. So that's one aspect. The other aspect I, I, I would make, since you you know raised the question of it, the book in relationship to architecture, is that I'm quite fond of saying sometimes, um, in order to be a little bit provocative with architects, <laughs> the line that architecture is more important than architecture by which I mean an architectural training, I think is a fantastic model of expertise that requires the synthesis and integration of many diverse elements, such as structure, engineering, economy, materials, politics, uh, location, population, uh, behavior, theater, you name it. You know, All these things can be relevant to an architectural project. So the architect, I think, has developed a very distinctive professional identity that is uh, able to miraculously almost uh, synthesize and integrate these very many competing interests. And that means, to my mind, that um, uh, if you apply that type of training to activities or initiatives that would not conventionally be called architecture, then great possibilities for innovation occur um, and that's what interests me. So that what I mean by architecture is more important than architecture is that um, it doesn't have to result, an architectural training or thinking doesn't have to result in what would conventionally be called an architectural space or a building. In other words, it can result in other types of structures or relationships. And I think uh, that's also what we're exploring um, in this book. I, I could say uh, a sort of words of... Um, uh, by way of a sort of going back to the introduction, what led me into architects, because neither Rachel nor I are trained architects. And in my case, I did a degree in literature, and I, I still think of most of what I do uh, being connected to storytelling. 
uh, and prose poetry, um, thinking about hybrid genres like prose poetry. Um, but from there, I um, I did first of all a master's in creative writing and then a PhD in creative and critical writing. And as part of that, I got involved with a Scandinavian group uh, where it was an international group across um, Sweden, Austria, and um, the University of East Anglia, where I was based in the UK. And that group was an interdisciplinary group looking at skill and practical knowledge. So in any meeting, you typically have a forester sitting next to a nurse, next to a professional philosopher, and then an actor and so on. And I started developing philosophical dialogues as a way of allowing these people from these very different disciplines to talk together and share a common reference. So one of the first... um, we developed was a meeting between Wittgenstein and Alan Turing to look at their, their different relationships to knowledge. But they were very fun and knockabout and accessible. And it, it convinced me of the value of using either performance or literary texts as a means of facilitating a reflection across disciplines. From there, um, I was actually invited to Sweden to establish a centre for the study of skill. And that happened to be based at the School of Architecture at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. So because I landed almost by chance there, I started talking to the architectural students that were uh, beginning PhDs in architecture about the challenges of um, taking essentially a spatial practice and giving an account of it in essentially a linear form, which is the uh, the written text. And I started uh, the process of really pushing at the boundaries of what a PhD could be by incorporating dialogues uh, or multimedia or expanded forms or lit- literary genres. Uh, and I guess all the PhDs I've supervised since then, since the first one in 2000, uh, which was a dialogue about 18th century landscape garden theory by Katja Grillner, all the PhDs I've supervised since then have really been pushing at the boundaries of what a PhD could be uh, conceptually and also in terms of its form and its expositional form in terms of staging and encounter. So those are partly my my interests there. Um, And I think I've stayed, I've, I've been fascinated by architecture amongst other disciplines by sort of incorporating into my toolbox some of the uh, ways of looking at the world and ways of thinking about the world through space and volume uh, that architects typically use, but also bringing to that uh, other logics, like, for example, the logic of choreography, which is, you could say, is an art of movement decisions. It brings the body into architectural space. And I think typically architectural architectural representation tends to repress the body uh, it disappears from the scene, <laughs> you know, and I'm interested in always asking questions about what forms of life is, archite- is an architectural proposal um, implying or explicitly proposing. And like Rachel, through her work, her, her really inspiring work with uh, uh, leprosy in India, I'm, I'm also interested in bringing in questions of embodiment and time and uh, physical presence in architectural thinking. Hence, an interest in performing arts and, more recently, uh, contemporary circus arts uh, in in ways of extending architectural thinking. Interesting. And so you kind of answered the question I had, so I'll reword it a little bit. And so you had mentioned artistic research kind of not being in the United States, and I want to come back to that. But I know when you when you mention all this cross-disciplinary and all these different fields working together, 
you know, I, I really do like your definition of architecture, but I know the first thing that comes to my mind is while I can't speak for every college in the United States, I can, I can safely say a majority of them, you know, you hear stories of departments being in the same hall, but nobody knows each other's names because you don't leave your department. So obviously I think in the United States, this cross-disciplinary knowledge formation, et cetera, just isn't there yet. And so I know you personally sound like you have success with it, but would you say that in the in Europe things are different? It's done better, or would you say it's kind of the same? Um, that's a, a yes. I'm not, that's a difficult question in in many respects. I think there's a lot of uh, talk about interdisciplinary and innovation. If you look at the ambitions of uh, many research councils, I know this was the case in Sweden, and I, I think uh, it's true in Belgium as well. There is a great emphasis on um, interdisciplinarity and innovation, but not a great deal of detail <laughs> about how to get there. And often the, the form of interdisciplinarity is a, a very weak form where, with disciplines that are quite closely aligned. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to work with uh, Ronald Jones, who's uh, uh, an American from uh, Columbia and Harvard, and uh, he landed in Sweden and we got to know each other, became very good friends and formed the... Um, experience design group at Konsvak in Stockholm, which was, uh, Ron became a professor. He's actually known as a, or was, he died recently, but he was known as a, uh, as an artist um, from New York, but um, he became professor of interdisciplinary studies. So I had a great training with him about how to integrate forms of expertise that's kept uh, far apart, uh, typically. And um, I think, um, well, I think Rachel is really taking that onto another level because uh, in Rachel's case, uh, she is one of these people that sort of overflows any attempt to classify her, her both her knowledge and her practice. You know, she has an incredible range of uh, references. And I think in um, the, the sort of work that I've been helping to develop with Rachel since joining the Experiment, Experimental Architecture Group in 2017 – I would even class as transdisciplinary, but I think that that's the exception rather than the norm. And that type of work tends to be, uh, it has problems with funding because for all the talk about desiring that type of work, it's difficult to evaluate and research councils are not, been, are not set up to evaluate that type of work. I often use this line, the world has problems, but universities have departments. And uh, it's also true of research councils. They have... Uh, siloed logics and they're not very good at getting these different um, fields to talk together. Rachel, maybe you want to come in there. Uh, yes, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that there is a desire for uh, multi and transdisciplinarity to be sustained. And it's, again, it's a bit like my first comment. It's the sustaining of it um, that I think poses the challenge because our frameworks um, want to retreat back because that's the way that our our, our knowledge and our universities are set up. That it, it, they want to retreat back into um, a, a departmental model um, that is uh, um, built on specialisms, um, and that's why I like. I mean, and I, I think I've done this uh, instinctively since I was a kid. But I use the um, the structures of life. Um, 
for me to connect the dots. And one of the things that I was doing recently, actually, after I wrote this uh, book with Rolf, um, was to actually look at the evolution of the tree of life, how it's drawn um, since, let's say, Darwin's tree of life. Um, uh, through to what we know about life today, which is now turned into a web. And actually, a lot of the ways that we talk about knowledge is actually what we understand about the living world. Nature is one of those subjects um, that is a constant uh, no matter you know where we look at um, human knowledge in history. Um, and when you look at the shape that we give that nature, let's say through this structure called the tree of life, we can see that our knowledge has actually mutated really, really quite remarkably. So if we look at Darwin's tree, it's actually um, a bifurcating um, set of branches, which in some ways looks at the specialisms that arose in the 19th century. And if we now look at some of the webs of life that have been uh, proposed since, let's say, Carl Wohls and the uh, rise of systems biology, where uh, computational power can help us make connections um, that we can't see with our natural senses. Um, the structure of knowledge that we've produced by the late 20th century, and this doesn't include all the uh, arts either, um, is an incredibly dense um, and, and very rich uh, network of potential conversations. But the frameworks and the environments in which we can sustain those, um, uh, those conversations, I think, um, are still very much rooted in the 19th century models, which, make, which is why it makes it hard, which is why you know, you're working against um, the flow of things, which is why you then think, oh, thank goodness, I can now <laughs> relax and not have to fight the structure of thinking um, uh, in order to uh, make my work. I think there's also um, a point to be made there about... Um, shifting formats or you could even call it technologies um of explanation you know so if you think in a, in a sense academic writing is a pinnacle of a sort of what i would call an explanation technology with its emphasis on precision accountability you know primary sources secondary sources clear uh non-ironic argumentation <laughs> um transparency uh accountability and so on and then um all of which is very good for what it does i mean it's very well served for what it does but underneath this notion of uh, this ob objectivity scientific objectivity there, there has been a sort of um deconstruction of the assumptions underpinning that by uh, uh, uh groups such as um feminist thinkers or post-colonial thinkers and exposing the provisionality of the so-called objective voice in that type of writing. And so the body has come in, the specifics of gender, sexuality, race, class, and so on has come in. But also there's been a movement away from the page as uh, the sole site of um, explanation <laughs> systems, if you like. And so the very first collaboration that Rachel and I did really revealed this to me because it was... Um, it's mentioned in the book. It was a piece uh, 
hosted at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris uh, for a three-day festival called Du Disturb. And the piece was called The Temptations of the Non-Linear Ladder. It was right. a very spooky setup with a black pool of water, uh, some Madaka fish in bowls around the edges, which are the only mammals capable of uh, reproducing in space, apparently. Vertebrates. Um, vertebrates, sorry. <laughs> Not mammals. Um, there were uh, the protocell movies that Rachel had made, which maybe you could talk about a bit later, um, around the edges. And in the center of this religious space, almost called the temple in the Palais de Tokyo, there was a large black pool of water above which a rotating um, metal platform, which could move up and down, and two circus artists who were given the brief of transitioning between different planes of existence. And this sounds very minimal, but it was a very dense and rich and almost uh, alchemical um, spooky sort of environment in which these virtuoso acrobats and contortionists moved their bodies in a sort of way that was increasingly non-human and explored relationships with their um, with their media, with their environment, with, with each other. And there was no words, there was no explanation, there was no caption, but people came back time and time again. Three times a day they came back to watch it over and over again because it produced this dense, complex um, uh, sort of existential performance which could be interpreted as many different things on each occasion. And what that revealed to me was that if you position this in a research context and say, instead of providing a transparent explanation, I'm providing a rich, opaque, dense, complex experience, which we then unpack by talking together and saying, what was your experience of this event? Does it, does it tally with mine? What was your interpretation? What was going on there? And through this type of configuring of experience through conversation, you actually arrive at uh, all sorts of research insights that you would not arrive at if you were simply illustrating an idea or representing a, a predetermined uh, concept or philosophy. And that became very uh, almost exhilarating for me to realize that a, a research exposition could be a, a um, an actual artifact or performance that was open-ended open textured and uh, you know richly complex um, and then the actual research unpacking takes place subsequently this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And, and that's a uh, thank you and for that. I, 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 I agree with uh, Rolf about the impact of that work. And I think that for me is where the notions of the Organa paradoxa came from, uh, which is a knowledge instrument. So you, it, the the work was so dense that actually um, you weren't making the products of knowledge. You were making frameworks, um, and the idea of the Organa paradoxa was uh, 
a line of um, succession um, from the major knowledge frameworks that we have used uh, in in human intellectual history. So from um, Aristotle's organon um, to uh, Francis Bacon's novum organum. Uh, and you know, both of those were anthropocentric um, frameworks and these mixing of bodies and materials and animals um, uh, into a structure for thinking with um, uh, gave the first clues that maybe the Organa Paradoxa was first of all something that was multiple and not necessarily just human-centred. Um, but the Paradoxa um, looks to the unclassifiable um, objects that uh, Carl or Carolus Linnaeus described um, in the Systema Natura. Um, and so it was really trying to figure out, you know, trying to um, describe, trying to communicate um, what that experience was, why it was in some ways magical um, and irreducibly um, uh, complex. There, were, there was nothing that you could put your finger on that would, that would break the spell. You couldn't describe it in a technical way. You couldn't describe it in an aesthetic way. It, it, it just had this density to it that you couldn't burst. Um, and so it was the first glimpse that, that maybe the condensations of practices and knowledge and materials and technologies and peoples um, uh, was needing something much richer um, through which you know, we now... Um, had to rethink our relationship with the world. And, and that, for me, was the first glimpse of what Organa Paradoxa might be. And what one could add to that as well as the um, as our uh, shared interests in going back to, let's call them knowledge-generating practices, which were driven underground by modernity. I'm thinking of things like uh, witchcraft, um, alchemy, augury and so on so the piece i mentioned the temptation of the non-linear ladder was in a sense a large scrying pool you know in which the focus was not necessarily on the virtuosity of the performers but rather on the on the um, ripples the waves uh, the the fields of energy being reflected in the water and the sort and the shapes and uh, that they could sort of um I don't want to sound too occult here, but they were almost uh, conjuring out of the space, the, the physical space, uh, um, some spaces which were latent or implied, but not not physically present through their movements and through the repetition of uh, of uh, these various elements, um, working these various elements inside the place there. So um, in that sense, uh, there was some analogies between that type of scrying practice, which we repeated in another version later on at the northern stage, and uh, Nostradamus and his um, attempt to foretell the future through smoke and candles and uh, reflections and so on. And I think what's interesting about those practices is that, okay, alchemy may be discredited as uh, as its stated aim to turn base metals into gold, but in in, in being discredited by modern science, a huge amount of um, knowledge transfer was lost. 
and likewise you could say in the embodied forms of um, uh, practices such as witchcraft you know regardless of what one thinks of the stated aims uh, an enormous amount of embodied knowledge was um, contained within those practices and they've been driven underground or disappeared through the uh, the progress of modern science and its um, obsession with evidencing and the metrics of measurement and so on. And, and I wouldn't be afraid of the word occult because that is the that that is the space um, of the paradoxa, um, the the hidden, um, the the elements of reality that. Um, may manifest in your life but cannot be drawn forth and in fact the whole of the um uh kind of certainly the 18th and 19th century were you know trying to identify invisible rays you know now we call them sound or we might call them photons or we might um you know call them magnetic fields but those were given a name so that we could understand control quantify put them to work um, and yet we couldn't do that to everything. Gravity, for example, even though you know Newton had described it, um, gravity is an occult force. We haven't been able to find the graviton. We haven't been able to call it forth. And so um, I, I think when we live in this age of incredible irreducible complexity, it, it, you know, um, quantum physics is the realm of the occult. <laughs> And and it and it is change. It, it you know as Einstein said, you know, um, quantum physics changes everything except the way we think. And so, in some ways, you, um, actually paying attention to the things that are called forth, including a pandemic, which has brought our attention to a world of microbes that we knew existed, but we didn't pay attention to them in the appropriate ways. We thought we had addressed the microbes with public health measures. We thought we had conquered the microbes with our antibiotic wars. We thought we had outsmarted uh, the microbes um, by our modern designs for sterility and our um, convenient kitchen poisons. Um, and, and, and I think part of this is, um, exactly as Rolf said, it's those aspects of the world that we haven't been paying attention to, which we've either been blind to because we haven't paid attention to, or because we somehow know they're there, but we we still haven't characterised them in a way that we can talk about them in an everyday sense. Yeah, so, uh, you know, in the pandemic, you could say, is uh, the return of the repressed in, in that regard. You know things that were there, but we've neglected, and it's not—it's not the only instance of things jumping across uh, species. Um, but you could think of weather or the ocean as being other sort of elements that we've taken for granted. It's been there, but we've ignored it until uh, we start noticing that we're filling it with plastic, or that the weather's getting a bit choppier, <laughs> more violent than it used to be, and uh, our coastal settlements are being flooded, and so on. So I think this this interest in looking at what's been repressed and bringing it into the light is not a sort of it's not it's not to fetishize some sort of Alistair Crowley like voodoo, but rather it's to celebrate the um, uh, the, the the vitality of living systems, you know, the the importance of life, and um, and also as part of that, bringing in 
again, the specifics of embodied experience that has been repressed by the strictures of modern science. For example, sensory knowledge. You know, the Wittgenstein raises this question, which I think is a really interesting one, about smell. He says, describe the aroma of coffee. Why can't we do that? <laughs> and do we lack, do we, do we suffer for that lack of an ability to to describe that knowledge. So we all know what coffee smells like when we, you know, walk into our cafes or kitchens, we recognize it straight away, but it's impossible to describe it. And so there, there is something that's outside language there, there's sensory knowledge. And I, I think that's also part of what we want to bring into the conversation around uh, the research conversation, these uh, aspects of experience, these qualities of being alive that has been repressed or neglected by what we have chosen to value in the modern system with its in the modern period with its logics of control and mastery rather than to return to this ethical um, point I made earlier uh, rather than um, care and attention so we've been teaching our architecture students to really work with those paradigms of care and attention um, of course mastery is involved and virtuosity and so on but it's not the goal the goal is really to work with rather than against you know rather than imposing will on living materials to work with such materials and 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 and, and i would like to say that um um you know, when we deal with the oppressed or the invisible, we need prostheses, ways of appreciating the presence of things. So, you know, science makes those kinds of instruments. So we've been able, through the microscope, for example, to see the very small or the um, telescope to be able to see the incredibly large or far away. Um, and computation, you know, the modern computation to be able to see the complexity of relationships between things and patterns. And so uh, this isn't just about the, the naked senses and um, a kind of naive sense of, um, you know, body in a space. And if only we pay attention enough, then the whole world will come to us. It's actually in, rooted um, in notions of innovation, uh, which Rolf brought up earlier, which is when we become aware of things, we want to know how how to pay better attention. And sometimes we need an apparatus uh, or a strategy through which we can um, uh, more clearly relate, see, um, exchange, um, or become part of a, uh, of, of a more complex choreography of uh, causes and effects that aren't necessarily linear. Um, so so it, it helps us develop relationships with things that we value, that we notice and that become important. And so I think with, a, with a, another kind of framing for knowledge um, comes new kinds of innovations, which are not about mastery and control, but are about establishing better relationships between things that may be softer, more distributed, um, and um, uh, kind of less uh, certain. Um, and so in that sense, um, they are more like a communications platform than um, a, a control centre. Um, but but I, th I think all of these, you, you know, are, are, are related in a sense, um, so that with um, being able to appreciate how we can pay attention to things that we've either lost sight of or we've never been able to see, we can establish ways of 
you know, bringing them uh, into our um, consciousness and with that then treat them better and work with them in ways that um, generate new kinds of outcomes from, you know, being a human body in, a, in an incredibly um, complex, lively world. It's it's interesting. Who would have thought that the former U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld would prove himself to be a really expert epistemologist when he spoke uh, in this often quoted um, uh, observation? In, I think it was in two thousand two in response to a question about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and um, he said uh, there are known knowns. There are things we know. We know. We also know. There are known unknowns, that is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know, we don't know. I think that's a, a really uh, amazing observation to apply more widely than in a military setting. Um, and I think, you know, what one of the, uh, I mean, I, th- I think that's a sort of area that interests both Rachel and I. And in my case, with a literature background, one of the things that's been left out of the research conversation for uh, most of its history is the idea of uh, human emotion, for example, and yet it's such a central part of our life from childhood onwards, um, and yet it's deemed to be something to be suspicious about in, in research because we don't want our pure research to be sullied by um, the uh, the influence of emotion. So I would say that... Um, Particularly, poetry is the is the great form for registering um, the complexities of human emotion. The fact that we're full of contradictions, and that we don't do the right thing, <laughs> that we don't behave rationally in our lives, and fiction is also the great uh, structure for exploring human contradictions and um, paradoxes. And that's why I've been really eager to bring this into um, research thinking and even research uh, formats such as the PhD format, because like the philosophical dialogue, it allows you to think against yourself. And I think that's where things get interesting. Instead of having a position, you can explore a knot of complexity, not to the K of uh, contradiction and paradox and so on, which more closely reflects the complexities of characterization and fiction and arguably the complexities of uh, the human trajectory in life. (laughs) Um, But you could also apply, and this has only just occurred to me, and I think it's quite an interesting thought, you could also apply those sort of observations about known knowns and known unknowns and so on to the idea, um, see what you think of this, Rachel, I've never thought, (laughs) never said this before, but to the idea of um, non-human emotion. That may be, in other words, that there are something akin to emotion that is in the more than human world, uh, which um, again has been neglected. It may be, I mean, obviously in animals we can we think of dogs and cats and so on as expressing emotion, but it may be that in uh, movements and in the expression of preferences, even things like microbes have uh, uh, an emotional aspect to them or something that could be translated uh, in parallel terms to uh, to emotion connected to will, volition, desire, and so on. And here, Rachel, I'm really thinking about those amazing films you made of protocells in southern Denmark, because they are, uh, you can correct me if I get this wrong, but they are non-living, and yet they appear to move as as if they are living, expressing desires, impulses, reactions, interactions, and so on. 
And for me, there's been when you first showed me those uh, films, there's been really uh, something that's haunted me ever since. Something rather spooky that sort of queers or blurs the boundary between these categories we use as living and non-living and so on. Maybe you'd like to say a few words uh, in a more <laughs> eloquent way than I can about those remarkable films. Well, no, I, I think that's really at the, um, the the heart of things, really, which was um, at the core of the chapter that we discussed on material knowledge, which is, you know, if if our if we privilege our human intellect so much, where does that come from? I mean, so there will be those that think we are part of the divine. Um, I am a materialist. I would be a new materialist uh, in the sense that um, uh, I like to think through life, which I believe is material, even the bits that we uh, uh, consider to be ephemeral, like the soul. Um, uh, and so I, I look for a for a material narrative, and and if um, if anything can be conceived intelligent, then it must be somewhere in matter. And uh, quantum physics has given us uh, incredible insights, um, just just amazing insights into the nature of matter. You know, which is uh, it has this uh, thirteen. Of billion year history, uh, you know, somewhere in the depths of the universe, at a, you know, at a time that is beyond human imagination, and this incredible journey that it undergoes. You know, the first moments of of um, the universe had none of the matter that that we would recognise today, which is an incredible concept. All of it is so ancient that um, we now have to build giant machines just to get a fraction of a glimpse of, of, you know, this ancient, ancient stuff. And um, the, the insights that quantum physics have provided is, has really given us the building blocks for a, for a new story of matter. And, and for me, that's my starting point um, because I can experiment with matter. I can observe matter. Um, I can touch it. I, it's, it's not something that I just have to rely on being in my imagination. Um, so uh, I like to get my hands dirty and I, I like to uh, poke at things and see what happens if I do this or that. Um, and so the, the, the chapter on, on, on material knowledge really um, starts to look for signs of, let's call it intelligence, but really the ability to make a decision to go one way or another. Um, in the structure of matter itself, um, and so uh, yeah, the, I, the the structures of atoms, you know, with these kind of pulsating cores and these, uh, uh, you know, kind of unstable, uh, uh, you know, sh- uh, almost um, satellites of electrons uh, uh, around them, and you know, stranger and stranger particles, kind of you know, zooming through the universe at you know, phenomenal speeds. Um, uh, it, it, it means that actually matter at its core is um, responsive to events because it's inherently unstable. And obviously some expressions of matter like radioactive uh, materials are more unstable than others. Um, uh, and there's a spectrum of, of stability. And somehow or other, life and, and, and our planet um, seem to have reached uh, an exquisite threshold of of uh, a choreography of of, of exchange. Uh, ben McFarlane talks 
really beautifully about this if you're interested in the chemistry of life uh, uh, you know, uh, from, from, from its origins um, in his uh, uh, book, World from Dust. Uh, um, but essentially, if you think of, of the earth as like a cauldron, you know, and um, it's got this magnetic heart and the tectonic plates are like stirrers. So um, the planet is being squeezed like an accordion or a, or a giant heart. And the water that's accumulated from asteroids is, is a big soup. Um, and then, you know, as water, which is a universal solvent, starts to release layers and layers of different chemistries, um, the choreography of chemistry can become much more complex you know dealing with fields and concentrations and interfaces and 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 um uh, more fluid structures than we normally think of when we think about geometrically bounded spaces um and so you know at the core of an atom is an ability to make a decision you know to accept or reject an electron or to acquire a proton or not um uh and and so that fundamental responsiveness um, uh, you know, we speculate, you know, becomes the matter from which we can start to appreciate levels of complexity, which we start to call, um, you know, decision-making, intelligence, intellect, emotion at, at, at another stage. And so, yes, it's uh, really trying to figure out where, when we talk about agency in something like new materialism, trying to um, be trying to deanthropocentrize the source of all activity and uh, appreciate its presence in things that are not us. Where does that agency reside? Where does it come from? How do we start to recognize and, and, and work with it? And this is where the protocell um, experiments were um, really lenses into that world. Um, so I came across them at um, Artificial Life 11 when uh, Takashi Ikigami gave his uh, keynote speech and this golden orb floating in this slightly flesh-coloured fluid um, moved across the screen. It was a film that he'd taken of experiments that he'd been doing with Martin Hansett. And it shed this amniotic-like sack behind it, wriggled itself free, it's, it was really like you know you 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 were at the beginning of a birth, but this was a chemical birth. This was a um, a skin of some kind of ester or uh, organic um, membrane, uh, chemically synthesized. But the relationship between environment and skin and body were just so strikingly lifelike that. I knew that was, um, you know, with with my own personal obsessions and passions, um, uh, that was a um, a technology stroke material um, that I that I wanted to work uh, further with. So I turned up at the Southern University of uh, Denmark, uh, the Center for Fundamental Living Technology. I'm sure that everybody was surprised by my presence, um, uh, but uh, I got to. Um, uh, be in the context of people that were working with these questions about the origins of life. They were um, actually using chemistry to make artificial cells. They were generating computer models that uh, worked with complexity at a, at a degree that um, uh, 
created new images of relationships between things. And it was an extraordinary tool set for thinking with. And so I uh, uh, resurrected some of the old recipes that were available at the time where vitalism was starting to uh, be scientifically disproved. In other words, um, uh, people like Pasteur thought there was something special about organic matter, but someone like Otto Buchli and um, Stéphane Leduc, um, they thought that actually biology was just a more complex form of chemistry and they set up experiments to try to prove this so people like Moritz Traub thought he'd made the first artificial plant when he added a copper sulfate um, crystal into a solution of potassium hexacyanoferrate and saw this um, uh, membrane fold and fold and fold again from around the uh, the a geometric crystal which is a diamond shape and become this like seaweed like mess it was like medusa hair and it happened in real time in front of you so it was like a magical transformation um and so some of these observations that were made as chemistry became more complex were used as evidence to say actually you know when we find out all the complex relationships between molecules we'll understand biology of course that didn't quite happen um, but going back to some of those experiments was a very rich tool set um, uh, through which not to um, necessarily make a new thingy, but they were lenses through which you could observe material relations through time. That was an extraordinary experience. And that was why something like, you know, a lens like an Organa Paradoxa um, becomes a tool for thinking. It becomes a way of seeing things differently. So the theatre of chemistry that became the protocell um, experiments really gave me personally, and I would lose myself in the world of the microscope, it gave me a personal glimpse at the origins of life. I could actually see membranes folding and unfolding. I could see little bodies starting to aggregate and seemingly negotiate something, some invisible thing between them. You know, when we actually tried to um, use scientific um, techniques like spectroscopy to try and figure out what was being exchanged, couldn't find any actual you know, special source. Um, so maybe these were just molecular interactions. But whatever it was, it was real and it conjured itself in front of me. And, um, you know, I started to try to figure out how to provoke and work with it. Um, and through that lens, I started to then say, okay, you know, can we now work with more ephemeral fabrics in architecture and design, like metabolism. I mean, literally, not just not just uh, think about metabolism as a series of um, secondarily joined up dots on a hub of consumption um, or production, but actually um, really understand um, metabolism as a fabric that flows around us that we can't really get our hands on because actually, you know, by definition, it's always in flow. It's it's both moving ions and electrons and changing the shapes of molecules. I mean, what an incredibly uh, uh, amazing and, and unfathomable difficult things to do but just incredibly inspiring when you get a, a small glimpse of something very simple um, in an intensely dark environment uh, and you could be equally looking at the stars as looking at atoms 
Um, so uh, I, th these incredible spaces, I think, have been made possible by the knowledge from the Enlightenment. I'm not down on the Enlightenment at all. I just think it's the tip of an iceberg. And I kind of want to know what else is there. Well, I want to thank you both for being on the show with me. And to all of our listeners, the book is The Art of Experiment, Post-Pandemic Knowledge Practices for 21st Century Architecture and Design. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's been a real pleasure and um, always uh, always inspiring to talk with Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us. Yes, uh, thank, thank you so much for the invitation to uh, uh, speak with uh, uh, Rolf, uh, who's been a great inspiration uh, for me. And it's a, a, a wonderful context that you're uh, offering us today to be able to, I guess, talk about our favourite subjects. So thank you so much for this opportunity. And it's been really great speaking with you both. No, thank you both. And hopefully we'll see more of this entering the States a little more. To everyone listening, thank you and have a great day.